0: We have with us here Andy Nichols, who I am really excited to have on. We were classmates for a little bit at Lincoln Christian University, Um, and I got to see a little bit of his life, which um, I'm sure he would say is less impressive than I think of it. Um, Genuinely humble person, uh, very well learned, um, and apparently insanely disciplined, um, just for his thesis, he learned multiple languages (laughs) in order to write on this this person, John Cashin, whom we love so much. Um, Andy, would you like to share a little bit about what you're doing right now as far as your studies and where you're teaching at right now?
1: Yeah. Yeah. So my name's Andy Nichols and I'm a married man, two kids. So I'm a family man. I'm a preaching minister. I've been preaching for almost a decade now. i um, been, been at Hillside Christian Church for close to four years. And so I've been there for a while, full-time preaching work there. And then I I just finished my master's, oh goodness, three years ago or so, three, four years ago. And I've been working on my PhD at the University of Aberdeen in Scotland since then, um, under an Orthodox priest by the name of Father John Baer, and I'm doing my my dissertation on John Cashin, so that's, that's part of the reason why I'm here talking today. And since then, I since starting there, I've also started teaching um, at Lincoln Christian University and Seminary here in, in Illinois in, in America, and as well as Ozark Christian College in Joplin, Missouri, church history courses primarily, and uh, that's kind of got that going on. So I've got teaching, I've got preaching, and I've got my own PhD work that I'm doing that kind of overlap in a lot of respects. So,
0: All right. That's a lot. Um, so I was wondering about just jumping right in talking about purity of heart in John Cashin's conferences. This is something, there are some people internationally who I've met uh, in India who would be they were really interested in hearing from someone getting their doctorate in Cashin's stays about what a uh, purity of heart is so just kind of like as a opener what is purity of heart
1: um, yeah well basic idea behind this is that purity and Cashin will use it kind of synonymously with purity of mind sometimes purity of soul Purity of heart is by far his most common phrase, but he'll also use you know, a few dozen times purity of mind. And it's the basic idea that the heart is sort of the mind of the soul, the eyes of the heart. It's, it's how we are meant to see God and see the world and see God in the world. And what happens to the heart through vices and passions Is that instead of being able to ascend and to set our minds on things above, as Paul says in Colossians 3, it becomes weighed down by passions, by flesh, by things that are in front of us. And instead of seeking to be satisfied by contemplating God, we choose rather to be satisfied by the things that plague our heart. So you think think of the scriptures behind it. You know, David prays in Psalm 51, create in me a pure heart of God and renew your steadfast spirit within me. And Jesus very explicitly connects it to seeing God in, in the Sermon on the Mount when he says, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. And uh, Paul will say that the goal of our faith is love, which comes from a pure heart. So there's a, there's a strong scriptural background to this going all the way back to David in the Psalms the idea behind it is that we were created to see God and the heart that is weighed down by the effects of sin that's sick instead seeks to be satisfied by something that only God can satisfy us with. And so in a sense, all sin that affects purity is seeking to be satisfied, going in, expecting something greater and getting something worse. And so um, just to add one more thing about this, you know, scripturally speaking, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4, uh, Paul's speaking about what Satan does. And many pastors in the New Testament speak of it this way. It says that he has darkened the hearts and blinded the eyes of unbelievers. And so Paul, when he has those scales fall from his eyes in his conversion story in Acts, and he says that he is going to go out and restore the sight to the blind. The basic idea behind purity of heart, especially in Cashin, is that this is this is how man, whenever he is truly being natural, and he's truly being holy and truly being full of grace, contemplates God in the way that God created us to. Yeah.
0: Okay. So I wanna I I don't know if you would say that purity of heart is sinlessness, but it almost some people could take it in that way. So is purity of heart the same thing as being sinless? And if not, what's the difference between the two?
1: Yeah. Well, I guess I would preface this by saying that being without sin is actually not God's end goal for us. So, you know, it wasn't just that my sin was making me guilty, and so God needed to take away all the sin from me. But there's a sense of um, sinlessness. Uh, even if I am without sin, it doesn't mean that I'm yet experiencing God the way that I ought to be. Um, but I, I, I would agree there's a sense, there's certainly a connection between purity of heart and sinlessness. in the way that he would phrase it, is that we actually remove the vices, the roots of the vices, as if they are embedded in the soil of our heart. And once we uproot those, and replant virtue, that's when virtues bud and they flower, and we start to experience the kind of purity of heart that God wants for us. And so, sinlessness, um, which is a different thing than holiness for Cassian, uh, this is—I mean, this is the beginning of the seeking of purity of heart, but it's not—it's not the end all so to speak.
0: So what is the end all? What is the thing that makes purity of heart worth the trouble in pursuing?
1: Yeah. So the way Cashin would phrase this, and he does this at the very beginning of his conferences, and he's actually very explicitly using language that goes back to Aristotle, goes back to very prominent Greek philosophy of, kind of developing what the purpose of your whole theology, of your whole view of life is. And he uses the terms um, that Aristotle developed called scopos and telos. Scopos would be, you know, the way to get to the telos. The telos is the end all. When Jesus is on the cross and he says to telestai, that means it's completed, it's finished. And the the scopos is how you get to that. It's the method that you use to get to that. And for Cashin The telos is the kingdom of God. So kingdom of God specifically in our hearts, reigning in our hearts. And the way that we get there, the method that we get there is purity of heart. So purity of heart becomes for him the way to get to the end. And so the language that he uses is we seek after purity of heart for the sake of the kingdom of God. Because after all, Christ says in Matthew you know, seek first the kingdom of God, and all other things will be added to it, and that's how we get to that point is through purity of heart yeah. so the kingdom of God then
0: um correct me if I'm wrong here, but it seems like Cashin equates that experience with the experience of of God's presence in mutual love um, and mm-hmm. elsewhere he teaches that the fear of punishment, um, leads in some way into this sort of love. Um, I was wondering if you could explain how that works exactly.
1: Yeah, and that actually goes back before Cassian. It's the exact same terms that you'll find in Origen or Clement of Alexandria and even in Irenaeus. Um, It's the basic idea that um, fear is... Generally speaking, the method that brings people over at first, but it's not the method that you you stick with as you grow Mm -hmm. in maturity. So just just for an example, um, I'll explain more specifically in cash in, but I think it's just helpful to think of it. You know, if I'm dealing with my three year old and to get her to stop doing something, so stop eating bread so that you can enjoy um, your meal later on. I might tell her if you keep doing that you're going to be in trouble and we're going to go sit on your bed and we're going to talk about this and you're not going to like that conversation now she's going to be afraid at first but what's the motivation behind that well as she grows older i want her to see more and more hey he wasn't just trying to make me miserable he was trying to get me to the point where i could actually enjoy something Mm. And so fear is not used by God. This is very this is a big deal for many early Christians. Fear was not something God uses um, for its own sake, but for the sake of good. So Psalm 103, his anger lasts only for a moment. Okay, in contrast to his love enduring forever and ever. So way Cashin would explain it is that. Fear is you know, sort of this one of first of three methods of a process that you get to love of God. First, he, he has you stop sinning. So whatever the sin might be, say it's overeating, say it's pornography, say it's uh, anger. Stop doing it for fear of judgment, for fear of punishment. But eventually what happens is you start loving the good. In a sense, your your palate has been washed, your mouth's been washed out, and you start enjoying what God has tried to actually create you for. In fact, all sin and all, all reasons to stop sin is not just from, I don't want to be punished for it, but actually, as, as J- Jesus says in John 10.10, 10, he came to give us life and life more abundantly. The more abundant life is actually the life without sin. And as you get mm-hmm. from fear, you get to start enjoying that life. It's, it's for its own sake. Then you discover that the source of all of that goodness is God himself. So you get to this point where what started as you're afraid of God punishing you, it begins to mold into, well, this is actually better. I'm enjoying it more. Then you fall in love with God himself, where, yeah, the one who's done this whole process I understand it now why he's done this. He's gotten me to the point where I actually love him, the source of, you know, the, where every good and perfect thing comes from. So and it, it's not completely sequential. It doesn't just happen one or the other, but there is a basic process. You can see this in all Christian maturity that eventually you stop being afraid of, of God punishing you because you realize that you're already in Christ and there is no fear of condemnation. And there's better things to be enjoyed than the fear of punishment in the faith.
0: Yeah. And he also teaches um, in the his conference on chastity, is it? Or is it on perfection? It's uh, conference 11 or 12 is what I'm thinking of here, that there is a perfect sort of fear as well.
1: Yeah. yeah. Um, which seems yeah. to be
0: almost like, I, I picture it um, as the difference between encountering a bear as Alec James Busson versus encountering a bear as the bear's cub. Yeah. Where yeah. it's terrifying in both cases, but there's two different vantage points that yeah. changes what that means.
1: You just think of, think of the scriptures for it. Okay. On the cross, the man cries out, don't you fear God? Christ certainly praises Mm. him for that. Yet in John, it says, perfect love casts out all fear. And we find in Ecclesiastes, the end of all things is to fear God and keep his commands. And in Proverbs, that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Mm. You go through all of these passages and you have over and over again an emphasis that you're supposed to be afraid of God, but... Perfect love casts out all fear. Basic point behind that, besides besides it just being different words, I mean, there's just in the Hebrew scriptures, there's 25 different words for fear. So, I mean, we usually just translate them all as fear.
0: I didn't know that. I didn't know that until yeah. then. Why has no one ever told me that? People have always told me it's just the two. It's just no. the fear of punishment or this reverence, respect.
1: No, no, way. no, there's many different words. In fact, one of them is, just explicitly, it's it's connected to the word of of um, being afraid to look at something. Hmm. Um, that's a whole longer mm. discussion, but
0: yeah, no joke, that's cool.
1: But yeah, I mean, the word that we use, and is at least in English, you know, we typically think of it, and, and it's it can be contradictory if you want it to be, if you make it to be. You know, he wants there to be no fear because perfect love casts out fear. Fear is based on punishment. Fear is based on judgment. And yet. Um, fear God and keep his commands because this is the whole of man. Hmm. Uh, and it's not the whole duty of man. It's the whole of man is, is what uh, Solomon writes in the end of Ecclesiastes. So yeah, there's, there's different ways of being afraid. I am afraid of God, but I'm not afraid of what he's going to do to me. Hmm. I have a reverence for him and he has more power and more control than I do. And that I pray increases, but I, I have no fear of what he's going to do to me, because it's based on what he has promised he will do. Hmm. In fact, okay. it's, you could phrase it this way, in the way I, I try to help when I'm, when I'm teaching people. It's, that it's actually because of my fear of God that I'm not afraid of him. And to the extent that I really fear him, I don't need to be afraid. Mm. You might be interested to know, okay. the most common command in Scripture is to not be afraid. Really? And yes. <laughs> That's really nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, John, I mean, think of how many just I'll, I could keep going on this, but think of the in the you know, the apocalypse in in Revelation when John sees Jesus and he's got the you know, chapter 1, he's got the seven lampstands, the seven stars, he's on his throne and he falls down terrified and the first thing that Jesus does to him is put his hand on his shoulder and says, "Do not be afraid." And I think that long before he even tells us well done, my good and faithful servant, the first thing he'll tell me because I'll be terrified when I die is to not be afraid. I think it's, it's a clear glimpse of what that first moment will be. Hmm. So you alluded to
0: something a little bit ago that I want to come back to. Um, And I want to come back to it like this. So there's, this idea of perfect love being described by Cashin as uh, the story of the prodigal son. Mm -hmm. Um, And I I have a theory and I wonder what you would think about this. And so my theory is that the prodigal son describes both the process um, over the long haul, over the course of a person's life, but also the immediate Uh, moment by moment, turnings to Christ, turning back to Christ. So when the monks were admitted into the monastery, they were told to confess all of their thoughts to the Abba. And then you Mm -hmm. see stories of uh, Abba Serapion, for example. He steals the bread, and then he does it every day for a long time, and he finally confesses. And the devil is cast out of him in that moment in this visibly manifested smoke that stinks or something like that. Um, And so in that that act of confession, he was made pure and he identified with Christ. And so there's this idea of when we turn to Christ by the means he's given us to turn to him, we become purified. And then we just continue that process of, I guess, wringing out the wringing out the the rags of yeah. our old life. Um, yes, that makes sense.
1: Definitely, I I would say too that you know the the way you win over your demons is by naming them. You have to name them. You have to be able to identify what it is that's attacking you. He'll he'll tell you in in the conferences too, and I'll I'll come more specifically to what you're talking about. But in the conferences, he says. thoughts come from God, from ourselves, or from Satan. And the Mm -hmm. first order of business is to decide where is this thought coming from, which is a hard game to play because, you know, in the Gospels, whenever someone says it's a demon and it's actually Christ, you know, that's blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. So this is not a light work to do. Um, But being able to name it, um, Fulton Sheen was a Catholic priest, very prominent Catholic priest. He preached a beautiful sermon on Satan regarding (laughs) our fight. It's just a funny thing to say. He
0: preached a beautiful sermon on Satan.
1: Well, he did. (laughs) And (laughs) he says this phrase in there that has stuck with me, and I think think this goes back to exactly what the fathers were talking about, specifically the Desert Fathers. if, If God is the one who is I am, he is the one who wants to show himself, make himself known, satan is the one who says that i am not and our ability to name him contrary to our ability to naming god is directly related mm. to how we can fight against him so in the christian life um, purity is one out and it's actually cash and talks about how it's you know no one comes up with this by yourselves but once you're shown the eight principal thoughts by the traditions of the fathers, once you're shown this and you see this played out in your own life, you say, of course, that's who he was all along. In my own life, just to give you an example, um, anger has always been the thing I struggle with most and never, never outwardly, but always inwardly. And as I remember reading Cashin for the first time, talking about anger and talking about how he thought he would get away from his anger by going away from people. Then he went into the desert and he found himself angry with his pen for not working right. He found out that actually he's the problem and not other people. And I thought, man, that's what's been happening to me all along. And once I was naming it, once I found out that was the vice and I fought against that one, that's when the battle shifted because I was able to call out what Satan was using against my, my own life. So yeah, naming it is is a massive step in getting rid of the vices. So Cashin breaks this down. This is the practical side of, of the faith. This is the side that most of us for most of our lives are in, getting rid of all the vices and the passions and fighting it, figuring out what Satan's doing, and then kind of eventually hoping to move past that to what he would call the theoretical side where, uh, and most monks didn't even get past this point, but getting to the point where you can just contemplate God, yeah,
0: so I wanna ask, going back to there's three sources for our thoughts there's uh, God, us, and the devil and and i the demonic and I wanna um yeah. get to that last one after covering how do we what is it um do you think our fallen nature? prevents us from purity of heart in some ways like some might think of this as an impossible goal um yeah. but you would think that this is actually attainable um in the yeah. personal life but then also maybe would it even be um what are there circumstances where this is impossible like say if I am housing a Jewish people in World War II And someone comes to my door asking if I'm, I'm housing them, you know, am I to lie or am I to tell the truth? Mm -hmm. Um, So do the complexities of life allow for this sort of purity uh, to be maintained?
1: Yeah. Yeah. I think the biggest thing, this is, this is a preface to the answer I'll give is that our nature isn't deprived of god's grace constant grace let me just say it this way and i think this could be really i really do think this can be helpful it's not as if we need god's grace so that we can get to the point where we don't need god okay it's not something given so that only whenever we mess up we need it again grace is something given by god constantly received and by design constantly needed it's a gift it's you know the greek word charis it's very related to the greek word for joy Kera or charisma the gifts it's it's very related to constant help from god and so my goal in my faith is not to get grace simply for the mistakes i've had but actually to receive grace constantly to be in that union with him. And the bottom line is that even with all of that, because the world is sinful, um, it is it is perfectly attainable with God's grace. Um, but it looks different than if the world wasn't fallen. So he actually has a whole conference on lying. Um, it was a big debate of his day in the 4th century, 5th century, um, about... Can a Christian lie ever? Now, Cashin would never say, well, you can lie just when you want to, or you can do these things just when you want to. But let me give a chief example that Cashin uses. He would say that, you know, there's a young man who's struggling with porneia, with, with uh, this the vice of sexual morality. And the, he goes to an Abba and he's giving up. He's giving up. He can't beat it. He can't beat it. Keeps on trying. Keeps on trying. Fails. And finally the Abba lies and he says, I struggle with it too. And the you know, the young monk on hearing that decides to keep fighting, decides to keep going. And he actually gets to the point where he's you know, the monk the monk didn't struggle with that. He'd been freed from it by grace. But that that sense of um I'm going to do what's actually most beneficial for this person. So he said, So there are times when he would say it was OK to lie. Now, he would never say lie just for your own gain. And I think the distinction is probably Cashin would would articulate it this way. If if he was pushed with similar questions, he would never lie for his own benefit or mm. an attempt of his own benefit. I think that would be a dividing line. Um. Yeah, it's, it's possible and it looks different because everyone around us is bad. And let me give you an example in my own life, just to, just to be honest. Um, there are times when I'll, I'll use an analogy or I will come up with something that someone really likes and they get excited about it. And they start to write it down because they're going to say it came from me. And I'll quickly say it didn't come from me came from I don't you know it came from someone else. I'm not lying because every good and perfect thing comes from God. But if I if I was mm. to say nothing, I think I would actually be seeking vainglory from it. Mm. And so there's times you know, there's times when it looks different in a fallen world where not even necessarily lying but presenting it in such a way that you don't get the credit for it It, it's 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 complicated but purity of heart allows for this freedom of i'm not going to try to receive the praise from it or i'm gonna try to let a monk know that i struggle with the same thing even if i don't yeah so
0: and in some sense that's not even a lie because what you're doing is you're saying the ultimate source or the the real you know place where i got this knowledge um, is God. So you're pointing their mind to the real and substantial source, even if you don't um, maybe fully recognize that in the moment. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yeah, at various points, at various points, all the extent of my dependence is, is varying, meaning I'll recognize that's just simply from God or I'll think, Oh, That's from me, but I mean, Cashin's Cashin would say this, and I would fully agree that even our best thoughts are necessarily from God, hmm. otherwise, you must, otherwise, you're saying that something good can happen apart from His help. And I simply don't think that thoughts occur outside of God's influence, hmm. yeah.
0: He gives grace, He gives grace, yeah. So I want to move on to um, a something that we covered the other week in a podcast we did on Athanasius. And so Athanasius describes the—and this is Louis Farag's reading, so I hope that I'm representing Athanasius well. It's been a long time since I've read him. Um, but he describes the human fall and redemption through the lens of the Incarnation. So you have—in the fall, you have Satan and our sinful desires— Um, leading into death, which brings us to idolatry. And the incarnation is kind of the reversal of that whole thing. Whereas an idol is visible, Jesus becomes fully, you know, God-man. God becomes incarnate, Um, lives the perfect life, and dies and resurrects. So death is overcome, Um, which overcomes the evil one and gives us a new heart, new set of desires that overcomes um, that evil one. And Mm -hmm. what Farag's reading of Athanasius is, is when you look at um, his multiple works, including the life of Anthony, is that the desert fathers themselves represent Jesus, that the desert fathers themselves are... um, they're fighting the demonic, the most basic thing. It's like they are going back and being Adam and Eve again because they're trying to live the incarnate life of Christ. And so I wanted to move sort of in that order of how the temptation leading to death happened um, and talk about Cashin's theology of purity of heart from that perspective. So there's the demons, uh, in the fall, Satan tempted Eve to sin, and many today are tempted by spiritual forces as well. And so Cashin teaches that the demons are actually here for reasons that are ultimately for the benefit of our salvation. Um, yes. And I was wondering if you could explain some of those and why Cashin holds this teaching scripturally and otherwise what what its practical yes. effect is
1: Well, well that's the that's the of all the things i've ever learned from cash and this is this is the most helpful in viewing the whole world i mean i i remember reading conference six which is a conference where he talks about the slaughter of holy people why would god do this and him simply quoting Romans 8, 28, you know, we know that God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Or passages like Ephesians 1, 11, where all things work in conformity with his will. Or, you know, many other passages that speak of God's sovereignty. And getting to the point where you realize, man, it's not just that God is weak even though I never would have said God was weak before, but to think that God allows me to be tempted for my own benefit, that's, if those passages are true, then this, is, this must be the case. And Let me give an example, and then I'll, I'll actually start answering. In Daniel, um, Daniel prays for help and takes the angel 21 days to show up. And Cation uses this example, and the basic idea is: okay, the angel shows up and he says the prince of, you know, prince of Persia stopped me from preventing here until the archangel came, and they fought, and now I'm here, and I've got to go back and start, you know, the fight again. You can read that and get really confused really quickly, but one takeaway from that: it's not as if God couldn't have just simply sent the angel straight there. It's not as if God is, you know, prohibited by Satan's power. Um, it's much more in line with even the temptations we receive that God allows us to be tempted with everything, every temptation, every time you've fallen. Everything has to do with the fact that God wants you for Himself. So, in First Corinthians chapter ten, verse thirteen. Um, uses this this way of explaining it where he says that we're not God will is faithful he won't allow us to be tempted beyond anything we can bear but with faithfulness with temptation will always allow something beyond sin to be presented in other words he'll always provide a way to not sin with all temptation mm-hmm. now why does paul have to say that because p- different people can handle different amounts of temptation um just, just to throw this in there, and it's, it's important to keep in mind in Psalm 119, go and read verses 71 through 75 of Psalm 119. Twice in that passage, the writer praises God for, and he says in verse 75, In your faithfulness you have afflicted me. You know, we read that and we think, What's going on there? Well, the bottom line is. God's goal for not for us is not to give us an easy life but to make us holy. God does not want you to have an easy life fundamentally. Otherwise, he's done a poor job and you and I both know it. But if God wants us to be holy and he tells us as much in 2 Thessalonians that his will for us is holiness. If God wants us to be holy, then the way to teach us to be dependent is to teach us that we can't fight Satan alone. So in Second Corinthians chapter one, I know I'm quoting a lot of passages, but these are these are how I think of this now. Paul starts out his letter in verse 5 of 2 Corinthians chapter 1. He says that we have been afflicted beyond our ability to bear, so that we despise even life and death, life itself, and and he, but he says, this happened so that we could learn not to rely on ourselves, but on Christ who raises the dead. Scripturally speaking, the reason why we're allowed to be afflicted is so that we can learn to rely on God. I don't remember her name. There was a paralytic who, who said this in the 60s, in the 1960s. She had a wheelchair, and when she got to heaven... She would. She was going to ask God. He said, "God, before you burn this chair, <laughs> before you send it to hell, um, I I want you to know that I'm so thankful for it, because the more I was afflicted, the more I relied on you, and the more I relied on you, the stronger I realized you are. And it's the same with the demons. First, or not? And Romans 16 tells us that in verse 20." that God will crush Satan under our feet. And in Romans 12, or Revelation 12, it says that we will overcome the evil one by the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. And there's a sense in which we are part of the final defeat of Satan. And Origen would say, and I would agree with him. Every time we crush down on Satan, we are walking out this new life of new creation where I'm following after Christ's example instead of Adam's. So the bottom line is, if you have the faith to believe it, God has revealed he's in control of all things. Demons do tempt us, but that's done so we can become holy. And only by their permission, by God's permission does that happen.
0: Hmm. Yeah. Wow. That's... Powerful stuff. I remember when I first um, read, I think it was was at Conference 7 when, or Conference 8 when Cashin talks about, uh, he's talking with Abba Serenis about how a demon was given to, I think it was Abba Paul, because he viewed women in the wrong way. A woman yeah. showed up and then he sprinted away from them thinking that they were evil and uh, he was paralyzed and had to be fed by the mouth by the nuns. And and when I read that, I just thought, whoa, that's crazy. And and he also talked about, you know, when you have somebody who seems to be demon-possessed, you give them communion, you don't withhold it from them, Mm -hmm. because what more do they need than the healing that Christ gives them?
1: Yes. Well, if it's it's all designed to teach you to rely on God, then it's actually, say it this way, if God's power is perfected in weakness... And, you know, Paul was given a thorn of his side so that, so that he would rely on himself to keep him humble, the text says. Uh, God did not deliver him because his grace is sufficient for him. But if God's power is perfected in weakness, then don't look just for your strengths to where God is going to help you. Wherever you are weakest is where you are going to find God's power most abundantly when you defeat that, Finally. And by finally, I mean, when you have a victory, when you win, when you decide, I'm not going to be angry in this moment, even though I so easily could. Yeah, it's 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 our vices that teach us the most about God's help.
0: So we talked about the vices inside of a different episode, but before we started recording, you were talking with me a little bit about their opposite the virtues and some work that you've been doing in, in cash and studies in that regard, would you mind explaining what exactly are the virtues? How do they overcome the vices and how do we uh, pursue virtuous living? That's a lot. I know. So
1: yes. Well (laughs) answer what
0: you think is important.
1: it's It's a big question. Yeah. I think I would start actually, with what Peter says in Second Peter one, um, now most most English translations—it's nothing wrong with the way they phrase it—but Peter uses a specific word in in Second Peter chapter one verse three, where he says most translations say that it's through the excellence of God that we have this or that, that we have participation with the divine nature. But in in Second Corinthians chapter one. Uh, sorry, Second Peter chapter 1, verse 3, he says it's through the virtues that we have participation with the divine. And the way that Cashin would explain this, I think it's exactly correct. I mean, I've been thoroughly influenced by him at least, is that the virtues, to use a biblical term, are the activity of God in us. It is how God works within us. So, I'm sorry, I'm going to go through a few Bible passages, but I just, I want to make this point as clearly as I can. In Philippians chapter 2, and verses 13 and 14, you have what is probably the most helpful passage, I think, in understanding what it means to have God working in you. Now, in our English translations, it reads usually something along this. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is he who is at work within you, both to will and to do the good. That's how English has it. That's perfectly fine. But I just want to point out that the word work there is different for how we are supposed to work versus what's at work within us. In us, it's argon. It's it's a typical word for work. We work out our salvation. That's the word for works that you'd find in, say, Ephesians 2.8 or something like that. But when it says that God is at work within you, That's the word energia, the energy. It's where we get the English word for energy. It's the word for activity. Mm. So this is what's happening. Yes, this is what's at at play here. We are called to work it out because God is at work, different word, Mm. within us. So the activity of God in the Christian is not just manifest, but it's actually to cultivate, to plant, to harvest, to produce fruit, to the fruit of the Spirit. I mean, it's the, you could go as far as to say that the production of the Spirit within us is that activity of God. So the virtues are what God is doing in us. I mean, he's, you, you don't have to speak interiorly abstract terms of, I don't understand any of what God's doing. I know he's doing something. No, the scriptures tell us explicitly in Philippians 2 both to want to do the good and to be able to do the good are dependent on the work of God in us. So in other words, the virtues now I'm going to get into more what Cashin would phrase, how he would phrase it. Now he would, he would use these passages, but, um, our kind of typical 21st century mind might need to go through those slower than he would have. Um,
0: That's just a funny thing to me right now, by the way, because you're quoting these various different scriptures, which I'm very thankful for, by the way. One of the things that I have a problem with in my own life is I'll say Cashin says such and such or said such and such because he's really impacted my life. And then I don't quote the authority that he quoted from. I mean, look at his his conference (laughs) on grace. He's got like 120 something citations. Uh, scriptural citations yes. in, what, 20, 30 pages of text. It yeah. is really dense theological scriptural thinking. And, and that's what yeah. you're trying to model, it seems, that you're trying to take what Cashin has uh, modeled in the conferences and then yeah. put that in a podcast for us, which yeah. I love. So thank you so much for that. Um, yeah. Don't stop quoting the scriptures here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, Cashin if you're thinking like the fathers then you're not just thinking what the fathers said you're mm. you're thinking that they're actually providing a way of understanding the scriptures and those passages that used to sound weird suddenly become very important um i mean any any time a passage sounds weird you probably should spend a lot more time in that one cuz there's something you're missing
0: that's um, that's kind of what you were talking about before we started recording, too, with Christ and the virtues. Yeah. And so yes. there's, there's the whole point of virtuous living is to form yourself um, mm-hmm. as a, a member of the body of Christ in community with the whole church. And that's the Desert Father's goal, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah.
1: Yes. There is a huge misconception with the earliest Christian monks that they sought to get away from people. They did not seek to get away from people. They sought to be around people that would help them. <laughs> um, you know, Jerome, and he's, he's writing, he's got a, a famous phrase, and it's it's not just him, but he would say that the desert became a city. And the reason why is, you know, Christians would go through this almost like we would have a, like a, a retreat center now. If the retreat center had 2,000 masters, who were there so that you could visit them and ask them questions about your heart. There's no, there's no equivalent today of what it was like then. I don't think really. Um, I mean, it was almost as if you were going to just to use an analogy, it's almost like you were going to the temple, you, you know, you were going there to encounter God. Um, but yeah. So, the, so they would say that um, Cashin explicitly refers back to Anthony talking about this. And he says that the monk should not seek after virtue just from one person. Meaning if you find somebody in your life you really enjoy, it's great that you learn from them, get a lot from them. And he says two things about them. One, don't belittle them for what they don't have. Okay, A lot of things that someone could say about me that I don't have. But he says that the, the monk should be like a bee who seeks out the the virtue of all the flowers, of all the people, and he's pulling out the virtues of all of them. And when he's collected it and he uses that word, um, he uses the word for anthology, which is just a bouquet of flowers. That's what anthology means. Hmm. It comes from the same imagery of common, just to get technical for a moment, a whole genre of, of what's known as miscellany, miscellaneous, which is pickets from every piece of people who've talked about a topic and compiled. And it almost seems like an arbitrary way, but whenever you Mm. understand they were chosen because this is the best. Oh, Oh,
0: and and that whole tradition, that's like the whole thing with the philokalia.
1: That's everything. That's the the Mm. sayings of the desert fathers. In fact, you don't find a single piece of literature from the desert fathers from an actual desert father. That is only focused on one person. Unless you're like Anthony and you're writing about one of them, but an actual desert father always wrote about more than just one person.
0: Just and, really quick for our audience. Um, yeah. The Philokalia is this Greek Orthodox text where in what, 1400s, something like that.
1: Uh, uh, 1782. It
0: was 1782. Yeah. Really? I'm an idiot. Okay, so 1782, um, some Orthodox scholars uh, drew from their whole tradition and compiled uh, several volumes of just these texts from the spiritual masters throughout their whole tradition. And so Mm -hmm. what you're saying, Andy, if I'm not mistaken, is Cashin is kind of the first person to do this mainstream, subsequently mainstream activity of compiling all of the best sources so that we can learn the best of the best. Yeah. That's, he wow. calls it as
1: much And in the preface to the conferences, he says, um, he says, I'm writing concerning the greatest of the fathers. And that was it's typical okay. miscellanies, um, which is a whole kind of rising way of talking about this type of literature. And Cashin was very literate in Greek and, and Latin. And just to summarize it, it was a way of taking one culture and showing it to another culture. So the fact that Cashin's writing this about his time in Egypt and writing it for you know Southern Gaul and Europe, this is, mm. this is taking a tradition and presenting a whole tradition that otherwise can't be done. And the Philokalia, um, which by the way, Cashin is in, um, yeah, it's, it's the single most important work out of Greece, out of Russia for the 19th and 20th century I mean it's monumentally influential about what it means to practice the faith and it's actually a whole different I know this is a different subject but I'll just mention this instead of trying to nail down different doctrines in sort of a systematic theology way the way that the monks would do it was they would just talk about what it means to be holy and what the fathers have said about that and everything else is kind of a subcategory of, of, <laughs> of becoming holy hmm. you don't have to have a a table of contents of 20 different topics in order to summarize the faith you just need to be able to summarize what does god want from me and how do i do that that's what it means to be able to know the faith so um yeah, so he does He does do that. You know, a couple other authors soon after him, there's there's six different languages of, of collections of what are known as the uh, mod Apathrum, the, the sayings okay, yeah. of the Desert Fathers.
0: Oh, yeah, and, that's exactly uh, what they do too.
1: That's exactly what they do is they collect, you know. And they're much sayings. more
0: pithy than Kashin.
1: Yeah, because by that point, the people who were alive during the height of Egypt were dead. And so it was much more sporadic. Um, so I think the best way to actually learn about the tradition isn't just to say, you know, here's a sentence from this person. That was written for people who remembered what it was like. For us, you know, Cashin's writing for a whole different culture. If you pick up the conferences, you can kind of get a glimpse into what that culture is like. Um, yeah, that's that's my plea for people to read it. <laughs> Um, But, uh, yeah, he he allows us to do that. And the whole point behind it, though, going back to the virtues, is not just here's some of the greatest people I met. Here's some of some exciting people, you know, like I would do if I visited some place that was famous or something. No, he thinks that in them, Christ was working Mm. in a way that everyone could benefit from if they saw the person. So if I present the person, which Cashin will always spend time talking about the person he's about to, you know, reference, that's not just there for fluff and for, you know, making up space, but it's actually there because he believes that the body of Christ does not exist without her people. And so you can't speak of virtues without speaking of people because that's where virtues embody. Um, Yeah, and I'll I'll mention this. This is a big topic, but um, this year I'm presenting a paper at the Society of Biblical Literature in America on the distinction between the enfleshing of Christ and the body of Christ. The basic point is, Paul says we don't know the flesh of Christ anymore. Cashin takes that, and he says, no, we don't know the the flesh of Christ, because the flesh ascended. It's seated at the right hand of the Father, but we do know him through his body. So, Christ became flesh so that all might become his body. That's that's a way of thinking of what virtue is.
0: Oh, okay. Okay, yeah. yeah. Because his flesh is ascended, but we are at the same time his body... I, you know, this would be too far apace, but I I like to think of that as a marriage metaphor. You know, the bride of sure. Christ yeah. and becoming one flesh with him is a good way of thinking about uh, that concept that you just said. Um, yeah. I guess I I, I kind of want to move forward, though, because as interesting as this is, there are a few yeah. other questions that I want to get to um, that pertain to stuff in Cashin's conferences that I think are are really important. Um and I'm gonna to try to combine a couple of the topics. So when we were talking about Athanasius, we talked about how there's the demonic temptation, and the demonic temptation leads into um, these these desires, um, which are you know vice-prone, but can be turned into virtue-prone. So virtues are it, it seems highly connected with our desires. Yes. Um, and whereas the sinful desires lead into death, um, the righteous desires, the virtuous desires, lead into life. And they lead away from, away from the idolatrous product that our sin leads us into, and they lead us into the true presence of Christ. And mm-hmm. something I'm curious about like, uh, Paphnudius would be a good example of someone who entertains angelic and heavenly community. Cashin talks yeah. about him as having a celestial, um... Body. Yes. Body, okay, yeah, yeah. He, um, so he had the company of angels, which is another misconception, you know, reason that the fathers are misconceived. You're only alone in the desert, if there's not god and angels with you
1: yes and so even <laughs>
0: yes. even when you're you're out there which goes into this place where you know you're fighting off the demons that jesus says go into the wilderness and waste places um and then try yeah. to return back inside of the public with even more friends like if you go in that area how are you not supporting your community yeah. um but yeah. but what i'm i'm kind of curious about is what role did death as um as a, a waypoint into life um play within their their thinking you've you've talked on the before oh yeah. about how John Baer mentions this concept of life in death um and he mentions that in the mystery of christ as well and <laughs> and ultimately this is something that we have in Jesus Christ and so who is the enfleshment and embodiment, I guess, of uh, God. And so I kind of want you to just rant about that in your most eloquent, beautiful, um, hopefully inspired by the grace of God way.
1: Oh, well... Death is not when we stop breathing. It's it's when we stop living. And that might sound completely useless to say, but the way that the scriptures talk about life is not the way that we talk about life. Jesus will say in John 17, you know, this is eternal life, that they know you and the one whom has sent. That's not, he's not speaking about, okay, they're going to start breathing again. And countless times, this might be helpful, too, in the Gospels, he uses this phrase in the Gospels. Whoever, typically in English, we translate it as um, whoever tries to hold on to their life will lose it. But whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. That occurs a couple different times. Now, that is not the normal word for life, zoe, that we normally use. It's actually the word for breath. Here's here's the basic point behind it. This is this is an old point, but I'm just trying to summarize it. Um, whoever tries to hold on to their breath will lose it, but whoever freely gives it up will find it. I've never heard that one before. Yeah, you were
0: so <laughs> that's just, that's powerful. That's really good.
1: To the extent that you are willing to die, you'll live. Wow. And. Here's another way of phrasing it that I think is, is so helpful for me.
0: That's like that Plato story, isn't it? Yeah. yeah. Where Plato, you know, um, asks his disciple, or was it Plato or was it Socrates? I, I'm messing up the story already, I think. But he, the, the teacher puts the disciple under the water and asks him if he really loves wisdom. And then, you know, he starts fighting for air and then he goes back up. And it happens, what, one or two more times? And then... Mm-hmm. The philosopher says, like you love air, you should love wisdom.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, if, if you, so if you think of the, the Christian way of thinking of this is Christ will resurrect in us whatever we are willing to put to death. Hmm. Mm. So in Romans 8,
0: Romans 8. It's like straight out of C.S. Lewis.
1: If by the Spirit of God you put to death whatever remains then he will also give life to your mortal bodies. That's such clear language of, okay, I've got to kill this so that Christ can resurrect in me. I mean, think of Romans 6, you know, we're buried with Christ in baptism so that we can be raised in newness Mm -hmm. of life. And in Colossians 3, I mean, the language is even clearer there, I think, where he says, put to death whatever remains, therefore, of your former way of living, so, what you used to think gave you life, you now put to death, and in so doing, you find the resurrection. So, in, in the life of the monks, they put to death things that people pursue constantly, money, fame, you know, whatever it is, women, bishops even, they, they avoided bishops because they were avoiding power. Uh, they didn't want to be given positions of power, so they ran away from it. And in the middle of all of that, it's not as if they're giving up their life. They're actually finding what life was really supposed to be about. And so the the simple way of thinking about it, I think, most just repeat myself, but I'll emphasize this, is that if you want to experience the power of the resurrection, then you must experience death first. I mean, if you're trying to resurrect something in you, trying to find a new life without putting sin to death, it's like saying that Christ can resurrect without him dying. It's exactly the same power that's at work within us, that's at work within Christ. And if Christ had to die, then you and I have no hope of the resurrection without it. Hmm. Hmm. There's so much more there, but those those are the big easy ways of thinking about it, I think. Not that those are easy, but wow. So wow. Thank
0: you so far. I have just a a couple more questions that I was wanting mm-hmm. to ask. Um and one of them one of them pertains to a difficulty that I've had ever since reading Cashin that I did not have before I read Cashin. Before I read Cashin, I thought, there's no problem in living, you know, the singly devoted spiritual life and being married at the same time. Yeah. But when you realize the concentration that these people um, had to put into their practice and what it means to live a life fully, fully devoted to Jesus Christ, um, Mm. it's... It makes me question, how do I, as a married person, do this? And let me put it in, in different terms. Um, celibacy, as Ephraim Radner and uh, someone like Timothy Tennant would argue, um, in, you know, Hope Among the Fragments is a Radner's book and uh, For the Body is Tenet's. Marriage or celibacy exists to serve marriage in some sense. And so it's a model, the pure model, of what marriage is to be. It's the marriage between Christ and the church that they are experiencing by being fully devoted to the Lord um, in this life. Whereas our marriages are more like how uh, the Red Sea was a type of baptism. So there's this real and substantial thing, but it looks forward to something even greater. And so my question is, how do we, as people who are married, practice the sort of purity of heart that is, uh, or I guess, learn from the monks how to practice purity of heart in the context of marriage?
1: Yeah, there's a there's a saying of Abba Macarius, and he hears of of someone who's holier than he is in the city. Which, if you are in, if you are in the fourth, fifth century, in in the desert, and you hear about the city, you think of that's the loud places, that's the, that's the Las Vegas, that's the the Paris, that's the place where a lot of people are are chasing after money and women and all of that. And he goes to the city, and he finds a woman who's married. And she said he asks her how how do you live a holy life and she says this and it's so beautiful she tells him that you know in my circumstances i've i've found don't matter i just make the most of what i have and he walks away and the text says realizing that marriage friendships all of these things are mere tools used by some people to arrive at different goals the same goal Hmm. and for Macarius to do that, which one of the teachers of Kashin, but also one of the founders of the most holy city in the desert, Skidi, um, for him to have said that, I mean, for them, they would not think of marriage as second rate, and this is people who decided purposely not to marry and to devote themselves to not marry. Hmm. They would say that, you go there today and you can find, and I've, I've heard this from monks in Egypt who are there still, that they actually went to the desert because they weren't strong enough to live in the city. Why would they say that? Well, they, they tried to find out what they were actually thinking all along. And most of the time when you go to the, the desert, you find out that the city wasn't the problem. I mean, just like finding out anger wasn't me being around people. So in terms of marriage, um, I mean, fundamentally, it's the exact same pursuit. I'm seeking to have a purity of heart and holiness and the work of God within me so that I can have the kingdom of God. And it's, it's very little to do with my circumstances. I mean, married or not married, I'm going to have the same goal. One thing that married Christians have that the monks didn't most clearly is It says in the Psalms, you know, happy is the man of of the children of his youth whose quiver is full of them. They're like flaming arrows into the enemy's camp, the Psalm says. So actually one of the the tasks that I have kind of viewed myself as is in my own pursuit of purity of heart. My job is to train up people who are going to live in the city, my children, the city, so to speak, who are going to live in society and who are going to bring down the kingdom of of satan from where he's most active so my goal now is to train people who will constantly transform you know the world the kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven sort of thing i'll, I'll mention this because I, I think it's i'll just be brief with this but i think it's important there's several times in the desert father literature where they will they'll say that they ran away from people um, and they, they didn't want to be around people because they they were pursuing only the vision of God. And they say at, at various times, and God will be gracious with me because I'm trying to teach you the basics. Their point, just, and I'm I'm poorly phrasing what they're saying, but their point is that, yeah, I want to pursue God only, but actually he's given me the task of teaching you. <laughs> so... Even though, even though Pathnusius was called an anchorite, and it says of him that even the anchorites rarely saw him, you know, that guy who's the buffalo and all the nicknames that he had. Um, here he is in Skeety teaching Cassian in a busy place in the desert. Now, why is that? Because God gave him a job to do something. Um, scripturally speaking, I think this will be the last thing i say on it scripturally speaking you'll never find a gift that's given only for the benefit of one person Mm-mm. and that's true of all in first corinthians 12 paul uses the phrase the spirit gives as he decides for the building up of the body so if someone is blessed with something an anchorite has a blessing or it ain't you know in a synobium they have a blessing it's always given for the benefit of everyone. And I think, you know, as a preacher, as a teacher, or whatever it is I'm doing with my life, right now it's a little bit of everything. But my task is not to take it only for myself. You know, that this is actually given, I believe, by grace for the good of the whole church. And if I don't do that, then well, I'm actually depriving the church of what God has gifted me with and everyone in every gift, everyone could say that. And it's, it's not unique to me to be able to say that. Um, So yeah, in a marriage, I think God is after the same basic idea, full circle around. I have the same goal that Cashin did. I'm just married. Yeah.
0: Okay. Last question. Um before I wanna ask if you'll you'll give any encouragement uh to someone listening on this podcast um but this is what I'm gonna to try to ask in every interview. Is there any question you wish I would have asked you?
1: <laughs> no,
0: no, yeah it was no. pretty it's been a pretty long interview already, and I really appreciate your time. Is there any <laughs> last word that that you could say? to our viewers to someone listening to this to encourage them in living the the pure life um in pursuing god and purity of heart
1: yeah i mean this wholeheartedly that we are all far worse than we think we are and God is far greater than we think he is. And the more that you realize that you are far worse without him, the greater he'll seem. Yeah, that's what I would say.
0: I want to pray for you and ask our viewers to pray for you and your family and your ministry as well. Lord, thank you so much for having the opportunity to discuss Cashin and discuss this uh, wonderful teaching with a person who I am so thankful to, to know, whose life you have transformed and who is continuing to share the tradition that you have passed on throughout your church. Thank you for the, the grace that you have um, bestowed on us in being able to learn from the many teachers that you've given us throughout the course of history within your church. And I pray that the Andes Ministry would be supported, that you would give him energy in the many tasks that he's taking on, that you would overcome the evil one and the many temptations that he is assaulted with um, to pride, to vainglory, to various sorts of sin, and that for us, that we would come away um, with a sense of compunction, uh, as Andy said, knowing how awful we are, but not being um, having that be a means to be despondent but a means to glorify you because of how great you are and how gracious you are and how you desire to um, turn our hearts toward you with every moment. And now, as Cashin says, and other fathers as well, you desire our salvation more than we do. Thank you for this wonderful gift that you give us in Jesus Christ. And it's in Jesus Christ's name we pray, amen.